So dreaming of a right Christmas. Uh, you know, Christmas is, is one of those things like uh, a lot of terms and concepts, events in Christianity that seems to have become marginalized. You know, it's lost its meaning. Christianity is, is really, after now 2,000 years of church history, become more of a just a, a social gathering or an identity that's associated more with geography than it is truly the Word of God and your relationship with the founder of Christianity, the namesake of Christianity, Jesus Christ himself. Christ, Christmas, particularly in the West here, is shrouded in cultural, traditional trappings that somehow obscure its real significance. And, you know, it's, it's hard for those of us who grew up in, in church, who have been maybe believers for a long time, to really uh, understand this. But there are many people, many people, still today in the year 2020, who have no idea what Christmas is really all about. I mean, they, they might know that it has something to do with Christ, that it has something to do with a baby. They might know certain details, you know, like Bethlehem or a manger, or they might have some awareness of angels or maybe wise men. But, but beyond the basics, to many people, Christmas is more like a, a fable or a, or a fairy tale. And as we enter the Christmas season, I'm dedicating December to Christmas-themed messages, uh, I really want us to start out by looking at the essence of, of Christmas. And in a moment, we're going to look at a non-traditional Christmas passage uh, to sort of make this a point. But what is Christmas really all about? Um, and to introduce uh, this message, I want to show a short uh, video. It's called The Wrong Christmas Story. And um, I think it'll really touch your heart. A dad is kind of uh, cuddled up with his daughter reading the Christmas story, and, and you'll see what I mean. But uh, uh, I think it'll, it'll warm your heart. Let's watch. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a king wearing a magnificent crown. No, Dad, that's not it. Oh, really? L let me try it again. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a powerful, well-trained soldier. No, Dad, you did it again. That's not right. Okay, uh, how about this? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a democratically elected president. What? No. A trendy motivational speaker. A big tech CEO. A movie star. Time traveling cyborg? No, no, none of those are right. The shepherds weren't going to find any of those. Okay then, little Miss Know-It-All. What did they find? 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Oh, that's right, a baby. Does that even make sense? A, a baby is totally helpless. Yeah, but if Jesus didn't come as a baby, mm -hmm. then he would have known what it was like to grow up. Ah, but wait. Why did he have to grow up? That's easy. To save us. Ah, well then that means that the best part about Christmas is... The baby. Right, the baby. Oh, well, I guess it's time you get some sleep. We got a big day ahead of us tomorrow. No, we're not done with the story. Okay, just a little longer. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he lives. My favorite line is when the little girl says, no, we're not done with the story. Out of the mouth of babes, right? Uh, because, you know, the Christmas story is not merely a 2,000-year-old historical event. It lives on day after day, at least for those who understand its significance. Uh, Christmas is about a baby, like the little girl said, but it's not only about a baby. It's about a baby who grew up to die for our sins. I, uh, I saw a Peanuts comic strip one time that has Lucy coming to Charlie Brown, and you know, Lucy and Charlie Brown are like oil and water, they never got along. But uh, Lucy says to Charlie Brown, Merry Christmas, Charlie Brown. Since it's this time of the season, I, I think we ought to bury past differences and try to be kind to each other. Charlie Brown kind of looks up at her and somewhat tentatively asks, well, okay, but why does it have to be only this time of the season? Why can't it be all year long. And Lucy looks back at him and exclaims, what are you, some kind of fanatic? <laughs> you know, for a lot of people, Christmas is, is merely a temporary thing. It's a seasonal thing. Christmas sales, Christmas clothes, Christmas lights. It, it, it doesn't really solve their problems, their real hurts, their anxieties. In fact, in many cases, for many people, Christmas exacerbates their anxieties. Christmas just doesn't work for a lot of people. It doesn't bring that lasting release from the grip of life that just sort of strangles you and discourages you. And that's because they have the wrong view of Christmas. Satan is the master deceiver he masquerades like an angel of light. He, he turns truth on its end. And he takes even something so powerful, so meaningful, so much a part of the core essence of God's Word, and he turns it into just another parade or just another sale at Target. And for that reason, a lot of people have the wrong view of Christmas. But... The right view of Christmas 
That's what we want to talk about this morning. We want to take a look at how throughout history, throughout human history, the history of all mankind, there have been key moments, key dots on the timeline, earth-shattering moments, when the creator of the universe changed the rules by which mankind approaches him and interacts with him. These are pivotal times when the stewardship under which we are living was unquestionably changed. Life-changing shifts in God's economy. Times when God unveiled new truths to all of creation. These are unquestionable moments when God changed the way we, we interact with our Creator forever. And the Bible calls these moments new economies or dispensations. In fact, if you look at Ephesians 3, the word is used there a couple of times. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. Now let me be clear. These are not pivotal moments in time when God changed the rules of how you and I, lost sinners, can be made right with a holy God. These are not new ways of eternal salvation, new ways of somehow being justified before God. That's never changed. From Genesis to the new heavens and new earth in Revelation, everyone who needs a Savior is born again the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what we see happening over the progress of Revelation, over the course of time, is these moments when something significant happened, and it changed everything that followed. And Christmas is one of those pivotal moments. In fact, in our study through Hebrews, which we're taking a break from for this month, we'll pick up with Hebrews 7 in January, but you know, the whole book begins with a reminder that this is a pivotal time. He says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. In other words, when Christ came that first Christmas morning, it was the presentation or the unveiling, if you will, of grace in high definition. Again, grace is an attribute of God. Grace has always been part of God. God is eternal, immutable, unchanging. All of his attributes are eternal. They don't get better or worse. But, but in the birth of the Christ child, we saw grace leap off the page. As I've said before, you can obviously trace God's grace from Adam forward. Uh, God's grace is everywhere. It's all over the place. But in Christmas, it's like... It's like taking a black and white movie and redigitizing it in full technicolor. And everything is just sharper and, and more clear. And in fact, you cannot find, according to Scripture anyway, the way they the Word of God describes it, a more powerful presentation of God's grace than God becoming flesh. God with us, the Christ child, who grew up, well, first of all, born in humble means, you know, not a victorious warrior like the dad was, you know, playing with his uh, kid. And I really resonate with that because what dad among us hasn't tried to, you know, read a story to their kid and change the words a little bit to see if their little son or daughter notices. And, you know, but he, Christ didn't come as a, as a victorious warrior. He didn't come as a soldier. He didn't come as a king. He came in the most humble of means. 
and 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 yet you know he he lived a perfect holy sinless life and then he had to face even more humble death death on a cross paul tells us in philippians and and that's grace because you know what put him there it wasn't his own sin because he never sinned he's god you put him there i put him there we were right there taking that bite of the forbidden fruit and it's because of our sin and disobedience that God had to become flesh, take our sin upon him, and pay our penalty. And that's the essence of grace. So as we talk about how to have a right Christmas, I want to look at Galatians 4. Now, if you were to list all of the Christmas passages you can think of, this probably wouldn't be one of them, right? Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. You think of a bunch of them, but this wouldn't be on that list. And yet... <clears throat> As we think about having a right Christmas, this tells us everything we need to know about that pivotal moment in human history when everything changed. When now we have a new and living way opened up for us because of what ultimately Christ did. He went from the manger all the way up the Via Dolorosa ultimately to Golgotha on a hill outside Jerusalem and he paid the penalty. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And in that uh, pivotal moment, the veil was rent in two, like we talked about last week, and, and we now have this new in access to God. We still have to come to Him by faith, like we always have to. The only way you can be born again is by faith. You become a child of God. But we, we no longer have to endure the, the sacrificial system and the codes and the dotting the I's and the crossing the T's and the 613 iterations of the Jewish law. We have a new and living way opened up for us. So Galatians is a fascinating book because it's Paul's first letter and one of the earliest books in the New Testament. James was probably written a little bit earlier and Matthew, but it's certainly uh, Paul's first letter. And he wrote to an assembly of Christians who were being negatively influenced by a group of legalists. And these were called Judaizers. They were stuck in the past. They weren't comfortable with this new way. They were quite happy with the old way. And, uh, and, and they wanted to live by the old rules. They couldn't handle this new paradigm, this new economy or dispensation, as the Bible uh, calls it. And so Paul encourages his readers in this first letter, which he wrote right after his first missionary journey. So to put it in historical context, he goes out with Barnabas, 48, 49 A.D., leaving from uh, uh, Syrian Antioch. And he takes this journey, hits all these uh, churches in southern Galatia, like uh, the regions, little cities like uh, Pisidia and, and uh, like Lystra and Derby and places like that. People come to faith. Uh, it's an incredible harvest of souls. He gets back to the home church in Antioch, and he gives a report to the church like missionaries should do. And uh, like we heard this morning when we heard about one of the missions that we support, giving out uh, the Bibles, the latest efforts there. And he gives this report. And no sooner has he settled in and getting ready to embark on the next journey than he gets a report. Uh, I don't know, he got a text or an email or something that all of these new Christians were being harassed and misled by a group of Jewish legalists. And Paul is so troubled by this that he immediately puts pen to paper. I believe he wrote Galatians as he was traveling from Antioch to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council, which was held in 50 A.D., 
But he didn't wait for the results of the Jerusalem Council where the early church leaders were to get together and begin to talk about how do we, how do we get along? How does Jew and Gentile in one body work? And what are, how do we let go of some of these old traditions and focus totally on faith and grace? And so, But Paul was headed to that, I believe, when he wrote uh, this letter. And he reminds them that they need to remember the big picture. He wanted them to realize that the coming of Christ to earth that first Christmas morning signified the dawning of a new day. Remember, at this time, the church was less than 20 years old. The church was founded in 33 A.D. It's 49 A.D., so do the math. And, and so they were still getting their hands around this pivotal moment, and he tells them they needed to reject this false teaching from these uh, Judaizers. A new day had dawned. A new era had dawned. And uh, he says, don't listen to those people. And so I think as we go back and examine this passage from Galatians, we're going to see five realities, uh, five theological realities, which indeed are true, truths that help build our worldview, uh, that we need to remember this Christmas. And the first one is this, universal incarceration. Like the little girl said in the video, the reason Jesus had to come as a child is so that he could grow up and save the world. And the reason he needed to do that is because the world has a problem. The world universally is under the bondage of sin. There's nobody on earth who does what is right and never sins, Ecclesiastes 7.20 tells us. Listen to the way Paul uh, starts chapter 4 here. Uh, Paul says, the world is under the bondage of sin. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. What's Paul saying? He's making an analogy here and saying that everybody on earth is in bondage to sin the same way an heir who is only a child is still under bondage, so to speak. Both sinful human beings and underage heirs are de facto slaves. That heir really should and someday will be leader and king and have all the rights and privileges that one should have as an heir, but as a child, he's, he's not. They're heavily influenced by their masters, and, be, and, and human beings are completely sold under sin. Uh, Paul's reminding his readers here, that original early Christian audience in southern Galatia, that they'd been set free from the bondage of sin. And why would they want to go back and become slaves once again of that? Galatians is really a book about Christian living and about what we call sanctification, that is, gradually, progressively growing up, set apart for Christ. So they've been justified by faith. They've been born again. We're going to see that in just a second. Uh, but they were contemplating, because of this bad teaching, kind of putting themselves back under the law with things like circumcision and, and other Jewish customs. And he says, why, why would you want to do that? You, you've already been uh, set free. Yet in the midst of this important lesson about, uh, about daily Christian life, discipleship, sanctification, an, an important theological truth emerges. And that is that we're all under bondage, universal incarceration. He says, even so, we, when we were children, spiritually speaking, were in bondage under the elements of the world. In other words, before you were set free by Christ and faith alone in Him, you were in bondage to sin. Now, this is what 
The scripture tells us again and again. For example, Paul says in Romans 5, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all have sinned. He said in, to the Ephesians, We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all born dead. It's the reason we need to be born again. We need to be born from above. Experience the spiritual rebirth that only happens by faith. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so Christmas is about, as the little girl said, a baby coming to grow up and deal with that sin problem, solve that predicament, save the world. It's what Paul said in 1 Timothy 1. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The reality of, of universal incarceration is something that the world would like to forget. And maybe one of the reasons that so many people have the wrong view of Christmas is because we live in a world where our universal incarceration is marginalized, dismissed, ignored, and completely rejected. You know, blatant sin that that we we've talked about in our study on Sunday mornings, the 18-part series we just finished, is accepted. Things that are not open for debate. And by the way, things that are, are uh, not even logical, you know. I mean, I want you to just think about this for a moment. And I, I debated whether even to bring this up, but I feel like we have to speak truth in the face of lies. But why in the world would we as Coloradans want to take health advice from a governor who's not even smart enough to figure out how the body works and which parts go with which body and what the difference between a male and a female is? I'm telling you, that's not rock. A 10-year-old can tell the difference between a male and a female. And we're supposed to take orders from someone with that level of ignorance? It's complete helter-skelter. It's, it's calling light darkness and darkness light. It's completely opposite. And that's the world's view. So when they embrace Christmas, they're embracing the complete wrong view of it because you cannot embrace Christmas without embracing the universal incarceration that made Christmas necessary. We're all in bondage under sin. And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus, Christmas should be a time to remember that we've been set free from that sin. That God in the Son paid our penalty for sin. He rescued us. So Christmas, really, the second reality, is a supernatural visitation. A universal incarceration calls for a supernatural solution. And that solution arrived in the fields outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. And it's what we call Christmas morning. Uh, Paul goes on to say in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come... Let's stop there for a second. In other words, when the appointed time had arrived... Going back to what we talked about in, in our Bible study hour this morning... God has a plan. And even though from a human perspective, Christmas and Calvary all happened at a point in time, from God's perspective, they had already happened. Christ's arrival on the earth and ultimate death and resurrection paid the penalty for sins past, present, and future. Have you ever stopped to think about how Calvary, the death and resurrection of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, paid the sin for Adam and Eve 4,000 years earlier. 
How is that even possible? Well, when you're an eternal God, it's possible. Uh, and, and by the way, that should also remind you of our position in Christ once you by faith have received Christ. Remember, the only way to, be, to receive the payment that Christ made on your behalf, it's not automatically applied. Not everyone on earth goes to heaven because Jesus died and rose again. Only those who receive the gift that he paid for with his own blood. And it ought, for those who do receive the gift that he paid for with his own blood, the fact that Calvary happens, you know, present, past, present, future, ought to remind us that nothing we can do after trusting Christ can undo what he did at the cross. Because how many of your sins at the moment you placed your faith in Christ were, were past and how many were future? All of them. <laughs> All of them, right? So there's a certain level of security there. But at this moment in time, Paul tells us God sent forth his son. There's Christmas. You want to find Christmas in this passage? There it is. God sent forth his son. Christmas is about more than individual redemption. The birth of Christ spawned a, a complete new era in human history, the fullness of time. This was the climactic event that impacted past, present, and future. God shattered the silence, burst through the realm of time, space, and matter, and landed, as it were, in a feed trough in a manger outside Jerusalem. The world's never been the same since then. And a right Christmas involves recognizing that because of the universal incarceration plaguing mankind, there had to be a supernatural visitation. Isaiah foretold of this supernatural visitation when he said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Never forget that Christmas, which we think a lot about gifts at Christmas, is about the greatest gift. And there's one giver, God, and one receiver, man. You don't get saved by giving anything to the Lord. And we need to really strike that language from our verbiage. Okay, When people talk about getting saved, they say, I gave my life to Christ. I gave my all to Christ. I gave my heart to Christ. Nowhere does the Bible use that language. There's, salvation is one directional. There's one giver, one receiver. God's the giver. We're the receiver. If you're trying to give something to God to get saved, you've got a problem. Because you have nothing that you can give God except a tired, old, sinful life under the penalty of sin. I mean, the old words of him, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And I think because of bad teaching, a lot of people are forgetting that God's the one that gave the gift. And they're, they're thinking they can somehow earn God's favor by giving something to Him. And God's that sit there saying, look, if you'll just put it all down and recognize you're a sinner who needs a Savior, I'm ready to hand it to you, but you don't have any room in your hands right now because you're too busy trying to work and earn and somehow satisfy God by your own behavior. A supernatural visitation. Unto us a child is born. And... Um, you know, Luke, you go, go to the angel Gabriel talking to Mary. said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. This is that visitation that we we're talking about. Or the angel of the Lord says to Joseph, She, Mary, will bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. And, of course, the passage we all know so well from Luke's account of Christmas morning she brought forth her firstborn son. The reality of 
this supernatural visitation is, is something worth remembering this Christmas. Have you thought about what an amazing blessing it is to be living in this present age? I mean, again, God is timeless, so people living before the first century certainly understood grace. They understood that they needed salvation. It could only come from God. It's not something they could earn. All of the sacrificial system in Judaism prefigured and foreshadowed the ultimate Lamb of God. But we don't have to connect the dots, do we? We can look back at a moment in history and recognize that God took the first step to help us solve our incarceration under sin. Now, the third reality that we see is in verse 5, and this is personal adoption. You know, one of the most common symbols of Christmas is a baby in a manger, and, and you see Joseph and Mary surrounding the baby, and you see this picture of a family. I'm sure probably everyone in this room has manger scenes decorating their their house already. We put one up. Abby put it up on our mantle, and it's it's beautiful. We have other ones. We have little toy ones that Zoe's playing with, Fisher-Price ones. We have cloth ones. My sister years ago made our family one out of cloth, and we have all kinds of mangers. And what's common to all of them is that it's a family. It's Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus. Obviously, it's much, much more than that theologically that we're talking about. But this baby who joined Joseph and Mary's family that day also grew up to live a perfect, holy, sinless life so he could take our sins upon him at Calvary. And when he did that, he paid the penalty, satisfied the wrath of Almighty God, defeated Satan and death and hell and the grave, and he then purchased life with his own blood and is the only one who can then offer it to everyone else. So that, that little family unit around the manger prefigures the adoption into God's family that all of us experience by faith. Listen to what Paul says in, in verse 5. To redeem those who are under the law, this visitation was for that, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Uh, earlier in Galatians, just a couple verses earlier, he talked about how we can become part of the family of God. He says we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. We looked at this Wednesday night in our uh, Bible study. And we talked about the concept of the family of God and how everyone is a lost sinner outside of the family of God. And our sins keep us from being in the family of God. Nothing we can do can help us break through into the family of God. We can't earn it. We can't be good enough. We can't have no argument to make, right? I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died for me. And uh, and, and he died for our sins. And so Jesus' death on the cross covers our sins. And when we place our faith in Christ and his work on the cross, it opens the door into God's family. And we are, spiritually speaking, adopted or placed in the family of God. Now, some of you here today can understand and relate to this concept of adoption more than others. Maybe you were adopted. Maybe you've adopted. You understand that this notion is more meaningful to you. But I'm here to tell you, Paul says we are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are a child of God. And once we've been placed in the family of God, nothing can ever change that. No child will ever penetrate through the wall of God's family. Listen to what Peter says. Uh, he says, 
Uh, well, so John also talks about how we can become part of the family of God. We become children of God by believing in his name. I just wanted to throw that in there. But Peter says, once you become a child of God by adoption through faith, you are kept by the power of God through faith. For that salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time, nothing, I mean, it's the power of God that keeps you. In the same way that earthly DNA clearly identifies a biological mother and father. Spiritual DNA clearly identifies us as a child of God. The verse I showed you a second ago, John 1, 12, as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. How? By believing in his name. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. What does that mean? You must experience a new birth. You want to be part of a family? You've got to be born, right? And we are spiritually born by the process of adoption. And that's why John would later say, toward the end of his life, as he contemplates, you know, this was 60 years after he had been in the upper room with Jesus, sitting next to Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, one of the inner three, and thinking about 60 years of knowing Jesus by faith. He says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. When you go from universal incarceration to personal adoption, it ought to mean something. It ought to impact you. And that's one of the realities of Christmas. But not only personal adoption, but watch this, individual inhabitation. Individual inhabitation. The Holy Spirit, God, literally takes up residence in our hearts. I mean, this is an amazing reality for believers today that was never before known in human history. How often do you associate that with Christmas? How often do you associate the inner working of the Holy Spirit in your life and that, that sealing of the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption, the permanent indwelling with Christmas? People in the Old Testament didn't experience that. David, uh, in fact, after his famous sin uh, in his penitent prayer in Psalm 51, he he prays, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because in those days the Holy Spirit could come and go. You could be anointed or not, and it was not a permanent possession. But listen to what Paul says. Because you are sons, that is, you've been adopted, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. And therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So again, contextually, he's saying, so why would you Galatians want to follow along with these false teachers who are telling you that if you really want to please God, you've got to do all these legalistic things? Theologically, what this tells us is that once we, by faith, become a son of God, a child of God, then we are an heir, and nothing can change that. In individual Inhabitation. If you're here today in, every, you know, in, in, in this room and you have trusted Christ, everyone who has trusted Christ has the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus promised in the upper room. This was the very night that he was betrayed. Within hours he would be on the cross shedding his blood as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And he told the disciples, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Who is that? The Spirit who will dwell with you and be in you. That's part of Christmas. Because the Christmas story isn't just a historical event. It's an ongoing 
that's not the end of the story, like the little girl told her dad. And it goes all the way through to him growing up, beginning his Galilean ministry, spending three and a half years proclaiming truth, dying on the cross, resurrecting, 40 days of appearances, the ascension, and then ultimately sitting at the right hand of God where he sits today in the throne and waiting until he's, God says, go get him. And then he comes back, and we're talking about that in our Sunday morning Bible study hour, the end times events. Paul said this in Romans chapter 5, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When you placed your faith in Christ, not only did you become part of the family of God, but you were given the individual inhabitation of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8, which kind of parallels the teaching that we're looking at in Galatians 4, Paul says, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received what? The spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Same words that he used in Galatians. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then finally, practical evaluation. We've got to keep this passage in context. And Paul ends in verses 8 and 9 by calling for a response from these original recipients of his letter. Um, and, and the story of Christmas calls for a response. That's what most people who have the wrong view of Christmas miss. Christmas calls on each one of us to evaluate our walk. Ask how we're doing in this family relationship. Listen to the way Paul puts it. He says, But then indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. So after reminding us that we're an heir of God, he then calls on us to look back to our pre-conversion days. You know, remember what it was like before you joined the family of God? Why would you want to go back to that again? Why would any child of the king ever want to live like a pauper? And that's really what the Christian life is all about. It's recognizing your identity in Christ and who you are. It's not about trying harder, doing more, keeping a list of do's and don'ts. It's about understanding your position in Christ and that you've been set free. And these early believers were being drawn back into a legalistic system by a bunch of Judaizers. Notice Paul says here um, in verse 9, but now after you have been known by God or rather are known by God. Let's stop there for a second. The, the relationship of becoming part of the family of God is, results not only in us knowing God, and often that word know, gnosko, is, it's a, used in several different contexts, but it, it's this intimate relationship positionally with Christ. It, it also speaks of God knowing us. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7 to the legalistic Pharisees who had self-righteousness instead of faith righteousness? They were trying to earn their place in God's kingdom by their own actions instead of humbly like the dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles coming empty-handed and saying, you know what, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. Instead, they were bragging about their long prayers and their big money and their huge phylacteries around their neck and their garb that they wore. And what did Jesus say to them? Someday you're going to hear, depart from me, I never, what, knew you. So God knows us if we by faith have come to him. We know him as a part of the family. And Paul says, that being the case, how is it 
How is it that you desire to be in bondage again? Why would anybody do that? So this fifth reality is, is really a practical one. It's about practical evaluation. Christmas gives us an opportunity to, to think back and recognize how by God's incredible grace that was displayed in high definition outside Jerusalem and Bethlehem that morning 2,000 years ago, we went from universal incarceration to all the way to personal adoption and individual inhabitation and being part of the family of God. So how do we have a right Christmas? How do we have a right Christmas? Well, again, as I started out by saying, for those of us that know the Lord, it's hard to imagine anybody not understanding or at least being somewhat aware of these realities that are so clear in Scripture. And yet even for us, we can get sidetracked and distracted by all the hustle and bustle, the lights, the songs, the busyness, all of this kind of stuff, can't we? And so this passage calls for that, that practical evaluation. Now, if you're listening to this or here in this room uh, today and you've never become part of the family of God by faith, then that's where it starts. You're still locked up in universal incarceration. And the only way to be set free from the penalty of sin is by faith alone in Christ alone. But if you place your faith in Him, even today, right now, while I'm talking, then in that instant, you're born again spiritually and you become part of the family of God. And then, like everyone who already knows the Lord, you can apply this passage this way. Here's the takeaway. Never forget the theological reality behind the historical event we call Christmas. It's a real event with earth-shattering effects and important personal implications. Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for the, the, the important doctrinal truths that often get obscured by um, Satan, ultimately, who blinds men's hearts to the gospel, and also by even some of your people, as we forget to get back to the core essence of what your word says. Lord, I pray today you'd raise up churches, raise up believers, men, women, uh, young people who will boldly stand firm for the truth of the gospel, and even at a time when churches are being threatened to be shut down, will instead proclaim it all the louder. And Lord, we pray if there's one within the sound of my voice today that doesn't know you, that in simple childlike faith, they would place their faith in your Son and our Savior. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.